Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we conclude our series, Facing Trouble and Finding God, with a message called Facing Joy While Facing Trouble. So let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm chapter 90, verses 12 to 17, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. This week has been a one-week exercise in facing some of the greatest challenges of life. Facing the reality of a world of injustice and then facing the reality of death both in the world and contemplating our own death. But I've called this series Facing Trouble and Finding God. I think Moses said it best. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all our generations, he said. And he should have known. If ever there was a man who had no place to call his home, it was Moses having been born to a slave woman and yet found his way into a palace, having deserted the palace, as the writer of Hebrews said, because he found in the Messiah greater riches than the riches of Egypt. He traveled to Midian and then back to Egypt, and then for the last 40 years of his life, he moved 42 times. I wonder, thinking about Moses' life, whether the extent to which we find this world our dwelling place, the greater are the anxieties that we face. For at least so it would seem that sometimes the wicked have a greater dwelling place here than the righteous do. Now, the writer of Hebrews thought so. I mean, speaking of the great men and women of God, Hebrews 11, 36 to 39 says, Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Now, of course, the writer of Hebrews means that they didn't receive what was promised in this world. That's why the righteous all say that were it not for the promises of eternity, we would of all people be the most to be pitied. We are banking on the future promises of God. I think the point that I've been trying to make throughout this week is really the same point that Peter tried to make in 1 Peter chapter 1, 6-7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, I think one of the things that Peter has in mind is that suffering is one of God's gracious gifts to us, for it sets our hearts on the world to come and loosens our rigid attachment to this world. And that's the reason for the title of this series, Facing Trouble and Finding God. If we face trouble the way that we are meant to face it, it should lead us to where it led Asaph. It led him to the sanctuary of God, and there he contemplated the final destiny of the wicked. But of course, it did more than that. Asaph came to recognize that all things need to be measured in the light of eternity. I once pastored with a dear man of God, Pastor Carlin Weinhauer. Pastor Weinhauer would always say that we ought to measure everything by asking ourselves one fundamental question. Will this matter 100 years from now? Of course, he didn't think that there was something magical about 100 years. He rather meant, will this matter after I'm dead? Or to put it in Asaph's frame of reference, will the prosperity of the wicked in the present hour be of a great deal of importance when the ages of eternity are rolling by and they are in the place of torment? 
facing trouble and finding God really is all about finding the Lord our dwelling place and hiding in the shelter of his wing and finding our source of solace and hope in him and in his promises. For if we face trouble and don't find God, we're left with nothing but despair and bitterness and disillusionments and fears. Because truth be told, in all our troubles, we either find God or we find soul-destroying hopelessness. I've spent the last two days discussing Psalm 90. Rather than finding the psalm to be a morbid one, I find it to be a hopeful one. Moses, the man of God, never found his home in this earth, but he did find a home in the Lord his God. He looked at himself and he found that he was dust, and he looked at his God and he found him to be from everlasting to everlasting. And with that, he considered the brevity of his life, but more so. He even dared to consider the reason behind the brevity in his life. We all live under the curse of sin. Sin and death go together. Death is a consequence of God's righteous response to our sin. It is God responding in wrath. When Moses asked, who considers the power of your anger, he was asking a very penetrating question. Who contemplates that in our world today, which has a population of about seven and a half billion people, that God is determined to put to death every single one of us? And even as I have said, maybe you don't believe that God is doing it. And by the way, if you don't think so, I think you're hopelessly naive. But, but even if you don't get to understand that, at least understand that God could, without even breaking into a sweat, snap his fingers and stop the deaths of seven and a half billion people. But he's not doing so. Think about that. Who considers this, says Moses, almost no one does. Moses is not in despair. God has been his dwelling place, not the dust of the earth. So where does all of that leave us? I want today to end this series with Psalm 90, verses 12 to 17. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Psalm 90 ends with five prayers for those who have squarely faced the trouble of life and have found God. Each of these prayers arise out of faith, out of the joyous discovery that trouble is not the last word. Rather, that trouble is the pathway of discovering God. So let's start with the first prayer. Lord, teach me to get perspective. Look again at verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. The idea of numbering our days may seem foreign to us. So for instance, if you knew that you had a thousand days left to live and you thought about it, you might wake up tomorrow and say, well, I've got 999 days left and so on. And as the number got smaller every day, you would have become much more sober in your assessment about how to use time. And if you paid a lot of attention, you might ask yourself, what is the wise thing to do with every day that you had left? For you would rightly perceive how quickly the grains of sand are flowing from your hourglass. And of course, none of us knows how many days we have. You know, I know that life insurance companies have life expectancy calculators on their websites, but all they're doing is calculating the averages. 
They will ask you questions about your health and your diet and your stress level and things like that, but they're just giving averages. God knows because according to Hebrews 9.27 that our death is according to the appointment of God. God has your day of death written in his calendar and you will die right on his schedule even though you eat bean sprouts and stay gluten-free. But as Moses told us in verse 10, we know the approximate lifespan of people. Canada, that number is around 82 years of age. If you live to 82, you have somewhere around 30,000 days from birth to death. And by the way, you can do that. Calculate how many days you've lived, subtract that number from 30,000, you'll get a very approximate number of the days you have left. The prayer request that Moses has is actually quite simple. Teach me to number my days. And that basically means help me get perspective on how short my time is. And from that, let me gain a heart of wisdom. That's his first prayer. But why is wisdom gained by considering the number of our days? I think the answer goes right back to the very first line of Psalm 90. Lord, you've been our dwelling place. When I consider how few days I have remaining, I might be driven to the one place where my home really lies. Considering the shortness of my days makes me less likely to think that the rich and powerful and those who use evil to get their own way have any advantage at all. I might not want to be like them at all. Wisdom consists in knowing how to live well. Wisdom consists in making the kinds of choices that lead to eternity of joy and spurning the kinds of decisions only related to joy in this world. What advantage is an afternoon of laughter if it's followed by a lifetime of sorrow? I would forego the laughter of an afternoon and I would grasp a hold of the laughter of unending joy in eternity. And that, my friend, is the heart of wisdom. And so the very first prayer that we should pray is, teach me to number my days. Help me not to shrink from this exercise, but lead me to consider how quickly this earthly life is fleeting away. And with that, teach me where wisdom lies. A listener wrote, thank you for the amazing Bible teaching. I listen daily to Back to the Bible Canada and feel blessed to have the opportunity to do so. Every message is always heartwarming. Sometimes it's difficult to understand all that goes on in our world, but our faith and the love of God is most wonderful. May God bless the ministry with great success in spreading the Word of God to all. Thank you. It's friends like you who make this Bible teaching ministry possible. Has your life been impacted by the Word of God in the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada? Well, with your help as a monthly partner, we can continue the calling of Bible teaching to our nation. If you'd like to join in and support the ongoing ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again or In Doubt, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca. I have said that at the end of Psalm 90, Moses gives us five prayers that are worth praying. The first was, Lord, help me to get perspective. The second is, Lord, treat me as an object of your mercy. I'm reading Psalm 90, verse 13. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. I want you to notice the last word here, servants. Moses sees himself not as a rebel against God, but as one who is created to serve him. And as one who willingly bows his knee to God, he asks that God would treat him with pity, that God would have compassion on him. 
But what does he mean when he says return and then how long? You know, one Bible teacher has said that this is a plea to God, that God would relent from his fierce anger toward him, and that God would be appeased in his anger, and that God would then turn and have compassion on him. Now, I think that gets at it, but not entirely. Because Moses knows he is God's servant, Moses also knows that he has entered into a relationship with God, that that he's a child of the covenant. Moses is praying, O Lord, remember the covenant that you have made with me as, as my hour of death approaches. And I do think that's the idea. You see, for us, when Christ died on the cross, he did die for all those who trust in him. As our hour of death approaches, we know that our death is not a punishment for our sins, for Christ has already been punished for our sins. Rather, listen to the words of Psalm 116, verse 15. It says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. You see, for those who have had their sins paid for, the hour of our death is not the hour where God visits us with punishment, but this hour is a precious one indeed. The death of a child of God is a holy moment. It's the hour of our glorification. It's the moment in which we receive our reward. You know, I was raised on the old hymns which we used to sing in church, and many of those hymns have sustained me in my life. I remember we used to sing a hymn that was entitled, Abide With Me. The last verse in that hymn said, Hold thou the cross before my closing eyes. Shine through the gloom and point me to the skies. Heaven's morning breaks and earth's vain shadows flee. In life and death, O Lord, abide with me. And so two important prayers as we come to terms with the brevity of life. The first, Lord, teach me to get perspective. And the second, Lord, treat me as an object of your mercy. And now the third, and how important is this third prayer? Lord, Help me to discover genuine joy in this life. Listen to verses 14 and 15. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. Here I want us to notice the words steadfast love. This is from the Hebrew word chesed, which is the love of God expressed in his covenant. This is the word that we New Testament believers attach to the covenant that we have through the blood of Christ. Hesed is sometimes translated as loving kindness or sometimes simply as love. With all the talk of wrath and of death, Moses knows that through the covenant that God makes with his children, the one that's sealed in his blood, that's the promise that God would visit us in favor. What Moses wants out of the covenant are reasons for joy all his days. Yes, the the plight of fallen man is to see evil days and hard and tough years. We will see things that reflect a world where everything is broken and where grief and sorrow touch us. But I have a covenant with God, or to put it in a biblical way, God has established his unbreakable agreement with his children that we should be the object of his love for eternity. Consider the contrast. If in this world one could be sure of only one thing, and if that one thing is this, that God is determined to pour out his love on his people because of the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus, then there is reason enough to be filled with joy and happiness and deep inner satisfaction all the days of our lives. And this fact that we are loved and that our hearts are filled with delight is that great counterbalance to days in which we are afflicted in the days of distress or the days when sorrow and uncertainty and even agitation at the success of the wicked overwhelm us. 
if we were to get one of those ancient scales, you know the one I mean? The scale that would put a weight on one side and then a weight on the other. What would we find? Put all our sorrows of this life on one side, the trouble, the, the heartache and the grief and the anxiety of life, put it all on one side and then the weight of joy we have through the covenant and the hope we have in eternity that I promise you, the weight of glory far exceeds the weight of sorrows of this earth. So three prayers. Lord, teach me to get perspective. Lord, treat me as an object of your mercy. Lord, help me to discover genuine joy in this life. And now the fourth. Lord, show me your majesty. Look at verse 16. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Can't you just see this prayer? Lord, show me your majesty. See, Moses knew about this. He had seen God humble the Egyptians. Ten plagues fell on Egypt, utterly ruining their economy. The last plague killed their firstborn. Then he stood on the shores of the Red Sea and, and saw the Egyptian military utterly devastated. He had awoken every morning to see God's people miraculously fed with manna. He had seen God appear in fire on Mount Sinai. He had stood on the top of that very mountain and uttered one of the most audacious prayers in history. Lord, he had prayed, show me your glory. And then God put his hand over his eyes while his glory passed by and then allowed Moses to see the last embers of that glory as it faded from his sight. The impact of but the tail end of God's glory was so overpowering that Moses came down from that mountain and his appearance just shone. Moses had seen more glory than we can imagine. And yet Moses had not seen even the beginning of glory. He had not seen the glory of the incarnation. He had not seen God becoming a man and dwelling with us. He had not seen the Messiah driving out demons and raising the dead and healing the sick and feeding the hungry. He had not seen the cross and expression of love beyond degree. And he had not seen the empty tomb and the announcement of the fact that death had been defeated and that eternal life had already invaded the present hour. And Moses had not yet seen the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, nor the river of the water of life, nor the one who is seated on the throne. Indeed, with all that Moses saw, that was just but a foretaste, a little sensation on the tongue of a great banquet that was just around the corner. And as believers, we must acknowledge that which is our eternal destiny. We may fear death, and that perhaps is natural, but we must long to see that for which we were created. But verse 16 is about more. It's an urgent plea that God would make his power known to both his servants and to their children. Moses is not satisfied that he would see the glory. He wants the next generation to see it as well. He's concerned that the knowledge of the glory of God not be forgotten in this world, this world of sorrow and of death. And for that matter, this is what drives parents to pray urgently for their kids. Oh, Lord, may this glory not be eclipsed. Let my children see it. And with that, Moses gives us the fifth and final prayer, and it's found in verse 17. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. The prayer is essentially this. Lord, let me do what matters for eternity. Lord, let my labors on this earth not be spent on worthless pursuits, things that soon will mean nothing. By the way, that's how it is for most. They spend a lifetime collecting money and gathering influence and power and making a name for themselves and trying to arrive at the good life in the end. But in the end, nothing has been established 
Everything is gone. Everything returns to dust. Nothing they have ever done actually matters, even a hundred years from now, never mind in eternity. For many, an unwise person has never gotten perspective of the reality of their own death and the reality that they are like grass. Some of us have allowed ourselves to become sidetracked in the things that don't count for eternity. And we in this have not considered the power of his anger. And if that's you, consider that you have but a short moment of time remaining. But as you consider it, don't despair. Rather, come to God and sue for mercy and ask God to let you live well and to believe well and to rejoice well and work well in this the valley of the shadow of death. Pray to God, confess your sins to him, and ask him to forgive you because of what Christ has done on your behalf on the cross and surrender your life into his hands. Don't delay any longer, for time is not on your side. And say to God, Take my life and let it be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. John, when it comes to life, you know, it can be so fleeting. And sometimes even myself, I wonder, you know, what is it all amounting to? What am I trying to work towards? What's the most important thing that I can achieve in this lifetime? Yeah. You know, it's such an important question to ask because so many of the things that we put before ourselves are things that are that are gone so quickly. They really don't amount to much. They they seem to amount to everything in the moment, and then they're suddenly gone, and it really wasn't important. I, you know, I want to say always, if we do nothing else in this life, but we have learned to find pleasure in the Lord our God, we have accomplished the most of all because that goes on for eternity. And then in terms of impacting other people, I mean, you know, Kathy and I have always prayed when we looked at our kids and we've said, oh, Lord God, may they live before you. We'd, we'd love to drag them to heaven with us, you know. So that seems to go on forever. So if we think in those terms, uh, if we think the forever terms, th- then suddenly it, the, the things that we thought were important seem to be less important. I think keeping our eyes on the long term is really an issue for all of us. And, and with that in mind, let me add one more thought. And the thought is this. When you think about what to do with your money, ask yourself this. What matters in the long term? If I give to missions or to the winning of the lost, uh, that matters. If I spend everything on my own fleeting desires, that won't. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week for more of Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Everyone knows about the physical world, but what about the spiritual one? This is the world that isn't typically accessible through our five senses, but is just as real. In his latest series, The Invisible War, Dr. John Neufeld dives into the spiritual world, highlighting that it's an arena of great struggle, but also an expression of God's glory. This August, we want to express our gratitude for entrusting us with your gracious support. Your generosity allows us to participate together in sharing the gospel. That's why, for the month of August, we want to give you a free copy of Dr. John Newfeld's latest series, The Invisible War, on CD. So call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca and ask for your free copy of The Invisible War today. That's 1-800-663-2425 or backtothebible.ca.